Hello and welcome to the October edition of Rich Pickings, Fidelity's Asset Allocation Podcast. I'm Richard Edgar, Editor-in-Chief, and today I've popped out for a coffee after recording the main part of the podcast. It's thirsty work, let me tell you. Well, this month we reflect on the dramatic falls in many markets. Is it a dip or the beginning of something serious? Also, the dollar, it's waxing and waning, and what that means for the rest of the world, and why Asia might be a good place for an investor to be. Listen on to find out why. Well, joining me here in the studio are three of the multi-asset team who've been debating the data and monitoring the markets as they settled on this month's asset allocation. They are Charlotte Harrington, markets analyst. And Charlotte, we, we always start with a rather left field question. So this time, can you tell me something you thought existed, but actually doesn't? Uh, diets that don't involve feeling hungry. That is a tragic revelation, but um, I'm with you. Uh, Also, portfolio manager Eugene Felidithis. Eugene, your disillusionment with something that turned out not to be real? Uh, When I was younger, I have to point out a lot younger, my cousin convinced me that a particular uh, chocolate company had bought uh, space on the moon. A chocolate company with um, a planetary association. With a planetary association, yes. I don't know if we like to say, Mars. Mars had bought uh, advertising space on the moon. I was going to advertise their logo on the moon so for everybody to see. So I was waiting for it. Never happened. I do need I'm to not... ask how old you were. Yeah, I was about six or seven. Oh, OK. All right. <laughs> Excellent. And uh, James, uh, Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset, uh, something you thought existed but actually doesn't. Well, perhaps um, topically and controversially, I'm going to say uh, central bank independence, Richard. And you were six when you discovered this as well, I presume. Absolutely. Jolly good. OK, well, uh, James, as always, before we start, could you tell us something about the positioning the group has decided on this month? Um, is there any change? Well, Richard, the answer is there is no change. But I think I want to put that in the context of a lot of debate and discussion. And actually, I think directionally, the move towards change. We took a reasonably strong decision at the end, which was now is not the time in the midst of volatility to to trade, to alter positions, to change your outlook. We wanted the markets to settle a bit before we revised our outlook. But you can see the seeds of change coming. So you can see the move towards um, increasing fixed income to neutral and maybe overweight over time, pulling back cash um, to offset that. You can actually see a slight move to um, increase US equities, etc. So you look at all of that and you say, change is coming but now is not the time to implement it. So just remind us where we are right now then. So at the moment, we are neutral equities, overweight cash and underweight fixed income. And we are um, underweight UK and overweight Japan equities. Jolly good. OK, Charlotte, what triggered the uh, the falls that we saw in uh, equity markets in particular? It's interesting. So it's really started off with the bond market sell-off. So um, yields, uh, particularly in the US, but, but relatively broad-based, moved higher, but not just higher in terms of getting to quite high levels versus uh, recent history. Uh, but actually, the speed of the move was quite quite quick. Uh, and part of that, I think, was down to a sort of fairly hawkish rhetoric coming out of the Fed speakers uh, and also strong US data, which has meant that um, real yields have, have pushed a bit higher in this environment. And Eugene, you're at the coal face, if I can say that, with your portfolio. Um, how have you reacted to um, uh, this, uh, this, this turmoil? Well, I think the direction of travel for us in portfolios has been to increase defensiveness over time. So that means either taking down uh, risk assets or assets uh, you know, exposed to growth uh, on a gradual basis and adding to uh, areas like duration, particularly U.S. Treasuries, and we, knowing that in the meantime, you know, U.S. Treasuries might weaken. But as we, if we're buying on weakness and we're buying as, as yields go up, then that is 
increasing the defensive posture in the portfolios, but also rotating within portfolios from uh, areas that have done well, so particularly strong performing areas, into areas where we think there is uh, some, you know, uh, either a margin of safety because they've underperformed recently and give us more protection or some potential, more upside potential. So it's really, that that's how we've been thinking about portfolios over the last few months. Okay, and um, Charlotte, the moves that we've seen in markets, they amounted to quite a, a chunky drop. Um, is that enough to start shaking the Fed in its um, progress towards higher rates, do you think? I think the Fed have put themselves into a, a slightly tricky situation here because, yes, the market move was quite aggressive. So you had the S&P off almost 4% in the course, over the course of a week, which you know seems quite a lot. But in the Fed's more slower moving world uh, they'd they'd look at that and say oh well equities are still up on a year and credit spreads are still relatively well behaved and so on and so forth so I think that threshold with which the Fed really start to take a step back and start to seem a bit more what we would consider market friendly uh, is a little way off us right now that's not to say that there isn't a threshold there is one um, but I don't think we're there yet. So you're painting a very um, a very grown-up Fed here, taking a, a, the, the longer view with a very sanguine um, uh, point of view. That That's not, uh, perhaps, if I could say, uh, what President Trump has, um, has done, because uh, he stepped in and said that Mr. Powell should back off from uh, any further hikes. Well, Trump likes to take the credit when the stock market goes up, but he doesn't like to take credit when the stock market goes down. So he's been quite quick to point the finger at, at the Fed, as you rightly say. Um, I doubt that this is going to have a huge impact on the Fed's thinking. And when you think about the way central banks look at the world, they're really just not designed to make very quick changes. They like to see the evidence in the data and uh, Trump isn't going to necessarily um, change their mind on, on what they're looking at. Well, that's good to know. Um, James, um, if they don't change course, at what stage do you think the Fed's policy starts to, to bite? Well, that's the probably more than $64 billion question, Richard. And, and, and the answer is we don't know. Um, and I think part of it, it comes down to the, the impact on economic activity and whether actually markets continue to worry or not. In a world in which markets keep, you know, recover from this, this correction and recommends moving upwards, we've got a, we've got a way to go. Um, and it's entirely conceivable. We see a shift in leadership. Markets keep going up. They, they cope for a while with um, central bank tightening and we're well into next year, maybe mid next year before there's a problem. But clearly at some point it will impact. I think what's also interesting is that at the moment you've got two policy levers that are really in in action. So you've got uh, the fiscal policy, which has been um, quite a significant stimulus this year, uh, and you've got the monetary tightening, and they're they're clearly working against each other. Now, while we think that we can see evidence that monetary policy is starting to impact the economy in certain places, so we've talked before, but continue to look at slightly weaker housing and weaker auto sales, um, the fiscal stimulus and those tax cuts for corporates has really seen uh, a complete boom in the US equity market. So the question is as much, yes, when monetary policy starts to to hurt, but also when that fiscal stimulus starts to fade, which we think, uh, although it's going to stay positive in 2019, that peak uh, stimulus is going to be about Q4 2018. Right now? Yes. Okay. Well, it's very interesting, isn't it, this um, divergent path that um, uh, the US could take. And there was a lot of discussion in, uh, about that in this group um, and the implications that um, either would have for the for the dollar and, of course, the wider global economy. Earlier, I caught up with um, another portfolio manager, Matt Quaife, to ask him to lay out the two different paths that he sees. So markets recently have been moving because the US tenure has moved up. And the question is, why did it move up? Now, 
thesis one for me, I, I like to kind of set out different theses. Thesis one is uh, the more negative outlook, which is ultimately the demand and supply picture has changed for treasuries. What that means is if you take the demand side, you've got QE going to QT. Fed was buying, now it's selling. Um, you also have the fact that a def deficit's being run in the US. And so therefore, um, on the supply side of things, there's more supply coming to the market. Now the question is, is that putting more term premium in the back of, uh, of, of the curve? And, and why is that a big deal? Ultimately, the, the P ratio in equities prices off that discount rate. So if we get higher discount rates, we likely get lower PEs, which is not good for equities. So that's, that's, that's scenario one. Scenario two, though, is that it is, this is an overreaction. Uh, the, the implied real rates in the 10-year just too wide and, and they are unli unlikely to be uh, sustained. Uh, the, the, the likely outcome would be a slowing in growth in the US or the Fed pulling back on some of their implied forward um, rates or, or, or essentially what they're saying with their dot plot. Um, that improvement could be very different for, for markets. That could help equities and could help a, a rotation with markets that have struggled recently, such as emerging markets um, or, or, or general non-US uh, equities. So the first one would be particularly bad for emerging markets, and the second one would be a relief. Yes, right? exactly. And so you can see the world going both ways, and, and that's the, ultimately the debate that we're having as, as, as portfolio managers. And where we're at is that we put more... Um, emphasis, I think, on, this, on the second thesis, but you could easily see that the, the market's interpreting the first thesis or, or, or similar for, for the coming months, and we really see it as a 2019 story for that rotation. We, we, we keep asking ourselves, are we ready to do that big rotation um, towards, towards uh, non-US assets? And, and we're just not quite there yet. Um, and this is in terms of the global picture, this is how the dollar is driving things out with the US. Exactly. So uh, if, if there is more demand for, um, for treasuries, ultimately the US is saying, please come and buy these treasuries. I will give you a better price for these treasuries. That can have an upward pressure on, on the US dollar because ultimately people are saying, oh, I, I quite fancy that yield. Um, whereas and more the, demand for dollars, ex exactly yeah. more demand, and, and sucking more demand dollars for out of the rest of the world into into the US, exactly, which is the USD liquidity story that we we've talked about a lot recently, um, and that is not good for, for for the rest of the world. Okay, Charlotte, do you uh, agree with these paths that Matt lays out? Yeah, I think they're both um, very relevant impacts on on yields. The reality is, it's always really hard to segregate into perfect boxes exactly what's what's driving something and so it's probably at this point a bit of both it's that kind of uh, and again it's really hard to separate the two because maybe the fiscal stimulus which has helped the growth picture has then caused the fed to be more more aggressive and that's pushed real rates up so um you know it's hard to make uh, a very clear distinction between the two but they're clearly both um, impacting the yields eugene how about you how do you interpret those those two views well, I think there's uh, there's a broader question here as well because where is this uh, demand for treasuries coming from? And in the over the last few years, there's uh, there's been some evidence that uh, a lot of the QE that's taking place in uh, Europe and Japan has flown into or flowed into uh, U.S. Treasuries because of the additional yield. Um, as we've seen, uh, 
that Q, those QE programs start to diminish, uh, there's, uh, that flow has now reversed. And so the, those buyers, those foreign buyers of U.S. Uh, treasuries, uh, the large foreign buyers of U.S. treasuries, have also stepped back a bit. And so that, with an increasing deficit in the U.S. because of all this infrastructure spending, tax cuts, which is putting upward pressure on the deficits, means you have this demand and supply imbalance, which is the, the negative picture that, uh, that Matt pointed out in his comments. And I think there is you know, potentially we need to see a correction in treasuries uh, with yields rising until they become attractive enough for those institutional investors to to buy. I think that's the point, isn't it? Is that there's, there is a price somewhere that attracts that flow and, and, and you know, supply meets demand, basically. Um, but it's it's where, where that rate is. Yeah. I think also within the recent correction, we saw equity sell off, but we didn't see bonds particularly rally uh, in in response to that. So there wasn't a flow out of equities into fixed income. And we didn't see the dollar move that aggressively either. So this was either a sort of particular response of equities, which had seemed to, you know, I guess, decouple from the rest of the world or, um, you know, in some way running on their own uh, story. And then we've uh, we've seen that correction recently, but not really fed through to you know, a, a broader move or a broader rotation in, out of equities into fixed income. So that demand and supply story for treasuries, I think, is quite uh, is quite uh, relevant at the moment. So we're talking a lot about um, the US. Uh, what about China, though, and, and, and the role that it's playing um, in the stabilization or not of, um, uh, of, of world markets? You know, Chinese growth, uh, admittedly, seems to be slowing, but there is some additional stimulus coming through there. The correction that we've seen in Chinese equities over the last uh, you know year to date really is uh, has been one of the most marked over the last 20 years really and so there seems to be value emerging there there, there seems to be policy response coming through there and that might take a bit of time to feed through and one of the areas that we're seeing is more attractive in terms of taking risk in the current environment is is actually asia and you know across maybe equities and and fixed income as well so I think that story out of China, I think maybe not the biggest buyer of, of U.S. treasuries, uh, you know, that they um, compared to what they used to be. But and perhaps as, using this as a political tool to stop doing so. Potentially. But I don't think that that's something they would really want to uh, sort of to, to go down. Not, the, not the yet route. anyway. Not yet. No. Um, so I think there is some uh, potential there. And the weakening of the RMB does mean that, uh, you know, there, there could potentially be outflows. But I think that uh, the, the Chinese authorities have learned their lesson from 2015. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Charlotte? No, I was just going to say, I think that the it's easy to forget that coming into this year, a lot was baked in the cake, if you like, for China. So you'd seen a lot of liquidity withdrawal, credit tightening. Uh, and so China was probably going to slow anyway. Then they had the double whammy of fiscal stimulus in the US, which pushed the dollar higher, and Trump and, and the US administration really turning on China and saying, right now we want to address trade. So they've found themselves in a very, very tricky spot. I don't think um, there's a huge amount in the data to, in fact, I don't think there's anything in the data to really ex- to say that China's now suddenly rebounding and, and the worst is over for them. Uh, the policy stimulus, to my mind, has been very gradual uh, and, and tinkering around the edges. And we certainly haven't seen that kind of big bang response that we might have expected in the past. Uh, so I, I find it quite hard to get overly excited about Chinese growth here. 
James, um, it sounds like there's something of the, the fisherman's patience at work at the moment. Everyone's sitting and waiting for the right moment to, uh, to make their catch, and whether it's buying on the dip or um, however you're, you're, you're looking at different parts of the world. So each portfolio manager's got their own favoured indicator. For Eugene, it might be the renminbi. For others, it might be um, data that leans one way or the other. What unites them all, I suppose, is, is trying to get the timing right in all of this. Yes, Richard. And I, and I think, you know, you have to begin your your sort of investment philosophy with you're never going to be spot on on timing. You'll either be early or late. And as a group, we like to we're, we're much more comfortable being early calling a bear market um, and probably late calling a bull market, i.e. Um, we'd rather sell early and be a bit late buying back in. You know, that, that seems prudent. Now, that said, when you start seeing uh, short to medium term corrections, we're much more comfortable with the idea of, of buying on weakness. And clearly we have a sentiment indicator that the PMs rely on quite heavily to look at when things become oversold. Because if we don't think we're entering bear market territory, it's a pretty, pretty good way of flagging a likely shorter term rebound. And that's a, it's a long way of saying, you know, you're right, everyone's like kind of on the fence. You know, it's one... It's, it's, fine to say we've seen quite big market falls but you know in the in the grand scheme of things if we roll back to where markets were two years ago something we're so far above that that actually you know we've got a way to go until we 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 call this as, a, as an obvious buying opportunity i think the bigger question is is what fish you're trying to catch i.e to keep your analogy going as far as i can <laughs> i.e you know what is it you're actually going to buy on weakness and clearly that could just be overall equities it could be the US fangs, it could be US value, it could be um, ex-US, could be emerging markets, you know, all of those are open questions. And, and I think, you know, the, the focus for us, therefore, is, is partly on when do we see it's appropriate to buy back in, but more importantly, where and um, what is attractive and actually perhaps what isn't, what's got idiosyncratic risk that maybe means even if we see an overall global bounce, those assets will be softer. And Eugene, are you um, tending towards the more defensive at the moment, or are you still sort of looking for for opportunities now? I think we're seeing some opportunities evolve. And if I look at uh, some areas in in Asia, I I mentioned Asia already, but we're seeing uh, credit spreads uh, widen significantly in in the Asian markets, both in investment grade and in high yield. Uh, Equity valuations have improved as well. And you know, after such a long bull market, it's harder to find those areas of uh, of value, and I think Asia is you know is is offering that. Unless, of course, you know Chinese growth slows dramatically or, or or falls off a cliff, I think that's you know a good place to to start investing some some risk capital. And are the two still as tied up as they have been, Charlotte? If I'm thinking about markets and the the, the real economy, um, is one genuinely the expression of the other um, or might we see a sort of big dislocation in, in, in one of the others? Are we going to see a fall in markets that might not be accompanied by a recession? Yeah, no, I think it's an interesting question, particularly after uh, the sort of well, the QE world that we've lived in. So QE was clearly inflationary to asset prices. And so, you know, yes, it is possible to have a bear market when um, or significant drops in, in risk assets when um, when you don't have a recession. And so I looked at the tech bubble um previously, which actually um, was a very shallow recession in the US and and actually no recession in the UK. So you you do have to be mindful that that, um, these things can happen for for other reasons other than just um, purely economic uh, drivers. It's probably actually worth just just noting there that clearly you've had a a decade, we keep talking about the lost decade in terms of wage growth and these other things, and and the only winners really have been asset owners. And so, you know, you could could on a a long span of, of economic history 
a, a substantial fall in markets is 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 actually simply a, a reversion to a normality of of you know asset owner versus um, worker wealth. So um, you know that would not actually be surprising at the moment, given the sort of global context. It definitely feels like that dynamic might be developing in some countries at least. Uh, one for next time, perhaps, because we're almost at the end now, which means it's time to play hot cakes and hot potatoes. What would you buy like a hot cake? What would you drop like a hot potato? Uh, Eugene, let's start with you, please. Well, staying with my Asia theme, my hot cake uh, is Asia high yield. On a number of metrics, uh, it's looking very attractive, both on a yield and relative to fundamentals. I think the and the fact that bond prices are you know, heavily discounted there, it's um, yeah, it has potential for you know for good income and for capital growth. And your hot potato, European government bonds. Oh dear, tell us why, <laughs> as if we didn't know. Well, again, a very uh, expensive asset class, I think, uh, with the central bank now uh, reduce, sort of cutting its uh, its QE program. I think the there is uh, scope for upward pressure on yields. Jolly good. Okay, let's move to Charlotte. Your hotcakes. I'm going to say uh, precious metals. So they tend to do well when real yields fall. So if if I think that the US is going to slow a bit from here, uh, then then hopefully that should work. Okay, and your hot potato. I will pair that with industrial metals. So uh-huh. again, a, a play on that China weakness theme. Okay, jolly good. And finally, James, your hot cakes. What would you buy at a at a moment's notice? So I'm going to go uh, emerging market debt, Richard. And I think you know that that is partly a a continuing view that EM isn't just a falling knife as a as an overall asset class, and 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 you know it, it it's becoming attractive. Um, and sentiment, negative sentiment, has exceeded fundamentals. And your hot potato. Is um, is probably not a completely dissimilar theme to Eugene, but but a bit more granular. I'm looking at Italian equities, and I think the the tail risk events that could occur in Italy. I don't actually think they'll occur, but I think the market might start price, pricing them in. It means you can be quite um, should be quite nervous about uh, Italian equities in general. Okay, all right. Well, lots to think about there. We are now out of time, I'm afraid. So I hope that's given you an insight into the thinking behind this month's asset allocation. If you'd like more detail, it's uh, published in full on our website. Thanks very much indeed to my guests, Charlotte, Eugene, James and Matt. And thanks to you for listening. We'll be back in a month. But for now, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.